This is Laura from the Peaceful Life Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 172, Beverly Hills Cop Movie Review. Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, my friend, how are you Chris, this week? I'm doing very well, Chris. How good. you doing this week? I'm good. I'm good. I'm always good. It's yeah, Thursday night. Yeah. I'm recording a show with my buddy, and uh, we're talking old movies. I love it. Things are good. Yeah, you know, I think if there's a week where you ask me how I'm doing, I'm like, I'm doing crappy. How you doing? You're like, I'm doing crappy, too. I'm like, I think that's about the time we know that we should probably stop doing the show. All right, so. yeah, it's a wrap. Yeah. All right, join uh, yeah. us next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bye. Uh, yeah, exactly. But no, all good, all good. Yeah. I mean, as good as it can be in a world where yeah. a pandemic has locked people in their houses for the better part of a year. Happy, happy pandemic anniversary, right? It's been a year now. A year, unbelievable. It was a year this week. St. Patrick's Day last year was the first day I was working at home. March 16th was the last day I was in my office. So it has been now a full calendar year where I have worked at home uh, along with so many other people who are in the same boat. It's, it is crazy. Do you remember so. what the last thing was you did sort of socially or at least going out and doing like pop culture kind of stuff like before all this came down? What was the last thing you did? Uh, I remember sort of the last. The last big thing would have been my brother and I went to a hockey game, Toronto Maple Leafs game. And nice. I, I want to say it was like the Tuesday or Wednesday before the pandemic. And we were already sort of hearing rumblings that maybe basketball was going to suspend some games. And so when we were leaving, the, I remember we were leaving the game and my brother turned to me and said, this could be the last game we're going to for a while. And as because I'm, I'm part of a season's ticket package, and he said, do you have any more games left this season? And I'm like, yeah, two or three games. He's like, mm, those games may be delayed. And sure enough, he was right. They obviously canceled the games and refunded my money. So that was sort of my last big outing. Not that it was necessarily pop culture, because I don't necessarily put sports into that category. Right. But but that was the last big one. And that would have been, yeah, I think it was the Thursday before everything locked down. February the 28th of 2020. So just over a year ago, my wife and I uh, were able to get a babysitter and we went to see Honeymoon Suite in concert and Prism nice. opened up for them. <laughs> and it was like, it was so awesome and it was great. And we, we left our seats. We went down to the edge of the stage and we were cheering the band on like we were like, I don't know, like 20 years old. And it was so much fun. And then next thing you know, bang, it all happened. So. Well, I got a I got an interesting reminder in my social media mm -hmm. feed today. You know how Facebook likes to do those things like yeah. here's a memory from X number of years ago. So I got one today that showed up that said, here's a memory from one year ago. Oh, and it was the pictures we took of all the junk food we bought anticipating, you know, we might be locked in our houses for a week or two. What are we ever going to do? And it was like 30 bags of potato chips and 12 bottles of liquor and a <laughs> case of vodka coolers and a whole bunch of soda. It was like. It's basically it looked like the like kids moving into a dorm like that was basically what it looked like. And you should so have bought some toilet like, paper is what you should have. Well, yeah, <laughs> what we did if we knew now what we knew then. But right. yeah, it was sort of it was like both an amusing picture and a sad picture and uh, like so much has changed, but so much has not in that year. So anyway, yeah, it is definitely. what it is. Uh, so let's focus on this week. Anything new in pop culture for you? So two things. Uh, yes. I have started to watch a television show that is on Netflix. My wife recommended it to me. I'm not sure where she got the reco mm -hmm. from, but it turns out as I've started to ask my friends about it, a lot of my friends have watched it. It's called Dark. Have you heard of this, Chris? No. Okay. Chris, did you ever watch Lost? Oh, yes. I watched Lost. One of the few things that I've watched since 1989 that I absolutely loved was Lost. Okay, well Love then, it. have I got a show for you? It's called Dark. Dark. It's okay. three seasons. It right. just it's three and done. 
The third mm-hmm. season, uh, I want to say it's it's relative. I think it dropped in late 2020, but again, we're so far behind on some of these shows. It's uh, German, so y- you got to put on the English subtitles, but I mean, I don't think you're afraid of subtitles, so that shouldn't be a big problem for you. Um, and it's it's in it's a lot of weird mystery stuff going on. Like I don't really want to say too much, but basically, I've been telling people if you watched Lost and enjoyed it, you're probably gonna dig this show dark and it's got two parallel stories happening uh like 30 years apart so you have sort of the now and then and it's like this small town in germany and there's like weirdness going on and you get to see like in the the current story the parents and their children and in the older story the parents are obviously teenagers and sort of the generation before them and there's a lot of parallels happening it it starts off where they talk about like these children have gone missing these teenagers and they're like well 30 years ago there was a similar thing where teenagers went missing and it was almost like the same kind of schedule so many days apart and the teenager was sort of same kind of demographics and and so you're get caught up in this like what's going on why are these kids missing and then like weirdness starts to go and it's it's so good we can't stop watching it my wife we were watching it together and she's like i can't wait for you she binged all three seasons before i even finished (laughs) season one she's like oh my god it's so good don't google anything until you finish this show it's she's like it's one of those rare shows where every year it seems to get better she's like you know most shows the first season you're like Oh, this is okay. And then it like it picks up and then it's sort of the, the quality make dip as it starts to near its end. She's like, this just got better and better and better. She's like, every show was better than the one that came before it. I was like, okay, yeah, it's really good. It's called Dark. It's on Netflix. One thing I've been watching is, uh, I've mentioned before, Sons of Anarchy. Mm-hmm. And we're in like season six. I think there's seven seasons. I just want it to be over. Like, <laughs> my wife is just like, no, we've come this far. We got to keep watching. I'm like, I just... I'm not enjoying it. It's the same thing every week. And the thing is, it's just like, there's not, there's not one redeeming character in the whole show. Now I know in the past we've done things like we've watched um, raging bull and like you've said, Oh, there's no redeeming characters in this. But the thing is, it's a big difference for watching an hour and a half, you know, movie. That's a character study of, you know, the underbelly of society than it is to invest seven seasons in these people. But I've said to my wife, I want it to end. I want them all, all to go to jail. Every single one of them. I want them all in prison. I want to show, that's how I want them all to end. That's how I want the show to go. So, yeah. and the other thing is, it was funny why I put it on the other night and um, the opening credits come on and it's Adrian Barbeau. And I said, I'm like, oh, Adrian Barbeau nice. is in this. And, she, and my wife is like, who? Who? Of and course. I'm like, I'm like, oh, you'd recognize her. You'd know her. And she's like, well, from where? I said, well, she was on Maud. And my wife is like, oh, yeah, because I watched that show so much. <laughs> she was in the movie Swamp Thing. She did the yeah. voice of Catwoman on Batman the Animated Series. Come on. And then my wife wonders why I don't invite her on the show. I tell you. Oh, <laughs> Anything else going on pop culture wise? Well, of course there was. Of course there is. I had to watch a documentary this week. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watched documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Documentary. What documentary did you watch this week? All right. I watched a documentary on Netflix called The Last Blockbuster. And I'm, I'm we're talking blockbuster video. Oh, so okay. Oh, okay. There, there is still. Oh, that's right up your alley. Believe it or not, oh. one blockbuster video in existence. And this documentary uh, tracks the, the blockbuster corporation from its inception to where it is today and the rise and fall and the the successes and the failures and all the different where people it who today, are involved. it's still you mean like it's still there's still there is one? literally still one blockbuster in existence that is still opened and, and they even had a little it's in bend oregon and they have a little postscript at the end of the movie where they say you know since they filmed the documentary during the pandemic they are still open they are doing curbside pickups and so I worked at Block as, as people who listen to this podcast know, I worked at Blockbuster Video for a number of years in the in the mid to late nineties. Mm-hmm. I met my wife at Blockbuster Video when she was an employee there. Many of my good friends, my best friends worked there. In fact, I got the job because one of my very best friends got me a job at Blockbuster when I was at university. And as a movie buff, there is no better job than working at the video store. Well, I mean back then than working at the video store. And it was just so much fun to watch this documentary, having that background myself 
And even if you're not a, a, a former employee of the great blockbuster video chain or or something like it, there is still a lot of good stuff in here. And um, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is super good. It's on Netflix. It just dropped this week. They do some interviews with some famous people uh, like Kevin Smith is in it a fair amount. Obviously, he did the movie Clerks, which is about a guy who, you know, one of the two main characters works at the video store and he himself worked at a video store. And then they interview some other actors uh, some more well-known than others who also had ties to either Blockbuster Video or their local mom-and-pops video shops. and um, But it's really the story about the, the Blockbuster Corporation and then this one particular one that is the last Blockbuster and the family that works there and how they're a part of the community. It's really, really good. It runs an hour and a half. Uh, I would strongly recommend it. Even if you're not really a documentary person, this one has a lot of mass appeal, so... Take a watch. You, you, Chris, I suggest you give it a watch, too. I think you'd really, get, you'd really enjoy it. I probably would. One that I'm really going to enjoy. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but my wife just mentioned it to me tonight before I came in the studio. She's like, oh, I just saw this advertisement on TV for a new documentary, and it's called The Search for Canada's Game Shows. And I was like, what? What's that? And so I looked it up. And so it's a documentary series. So it's like a couple of seasons of, I don't know how many episodes is in each season. And it's a documentary about like looking, you know, back at the history of game shows in Canada. And the thing was, is, you know, we've mentioned game shows here on the podcast before. We've done a whole episode dedicated to them. And back in like the 50s in the United States, there was all these scandals that came out around the game shows. So it really allowed sort of Canadian game shows to kind of proliferate. And there was all kinds of Canadian game shows. It was it was a big thing for a while there. And I guess this documentary goes back and searches for like footage of it and tries to talk about the history of these things. And it's hosted by Wayne Cox. And he hosted a couple game shows himself, including Acting Crazy and Talk About. Remember those shows? I do. And I, I've actually seen some of these episodes because oh, the season you're, one came out last year. Your buddy, I, I believe your good friend, Paul Sung Young Lee from Kim's Convenience is, is on some of the episodes, isn't he? Uh, none that I've seen so far. I, I haven't seen, seen all of them, but, uh, I, yeah, I, I, haven't, I have not seen any of the new ones. It yeah. looks like the new season just, uh, is just come, about to come out here in March, late March. So, so this looks uh, like something that would be up my alley for sure. Yeah, for sure. No, I, 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 it looks like there were six episodes in the first season. I think I saw the first two or the first four. It looks like they came out in pairs, two, four, six. Yeah. I think I saw the first four. So, uh, hopefully, uh, they're available on demand. I'm going to, I'll definitely go back and put them on my watch list, but I, I have watched the first few. I remember when they were putting this documentary together on some of the shows that air Canadian old game shows, they actually had commercials saying we're making documentaries. And if you have old video footage of oh, yeah, any of the old Canadian it. game shows, yeah. we want your footage. Please contact us at Ooh. blah, 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 blah. And you can see in those first episodes, like a lot of the footage is really old and it's grainy video. Like clearly nobody thought there was any value in keeping mm -hmm. the, the footage from these old shows. But yeah, no, it, it was a lot of fun. The ones I saw. So I think we're going to like it. Oh, I, I definitely would love it. The only thing I love more than old Canadian game shows is dad jokes. Here's your dad joke of the week. Okay, Derek, since we're doing Beverly Hills Cop this week, I thought I would do like kind of like a cop criminal joke for everyone. Okay. okay. So are you ready? Is the joke itself criminal? <laughs> they, they always are. They, they always <laughs> are, baby. Okay. Derek, what happened to the criminal who stole a lamp? I don't know. He got a light sentence. Boo. We need to lock you up for telling that joke. I was the only man left on the planet after the Holocaust, eh? Because yeah. you're probably drunk. That's why I just spent all my time looking for beer. Save me one of those beers. No way, eh? Experience and maturity. I gotta no. take a leak so bad like I can taste it. I don't know how they got him to do it. You drive. There's a lot of cops around. It was a different time. No, no, I've had, I've had enough beer. Some of the things from the early 80s, it's, it's hard to relate to them now. Oh, come on. That's some funny <laughs> shit right there. <laughs> I love listening to those things. It always <laughs> makes me laugh. I don't know. You it's, love laughing at your own jokes, but It's just all those like quotes of like, we're so Canadian. Okay, so it was over to me this week, and uh, I had the privilege to choose our movie to review. So in light of the fact that Coming to America 2 uh, debuted on the streaming services, I decided to go back and find an actually good Andy Murphy movie. 
Um, and since and we, we already, already did, we already did come into America. We did coming to America on a previous yeah. show. So I decided to go a different way. So uh, I went with 1984's Beverly Hills Cop. So your initial thoughts, Derek, you got a chance to go back and watch this movie. Had you seen it in a long time? What do you think? Does it hold up? All that stuff. Just your overall, just like a quick take and then we'll kind of dive into it. So I had seen it before. I think think you're going to be hard pressed to find someone in our age Mm -hmm. demographic that has not seen this before because it's a a great movie for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I, I hadn't seen it in its entirety start to finish in... I gotta say maybe probably about five years ish, give or take. Uh, it's on TV. It's on some of the pay channels from time to time. And you might be like, Oh, I'll watch this little scene. But to, more often than not, it always seems to run on channels that, that edit the swears out. And it's like, you can't watch an Eddie Murphy no. movie from the eighties where they're going to bleep out the swear words. The, you know, half the movie is bleeps. Um, but no, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed this movie. It's got a lot, a, a lot of good things going for it. Uh, I hadn't watched it in a while. I hadn't watched it with that sort of critical eye that we do for the podcast in right. quite some time. So it, when I watched it again this week, there were certainly some things that I picked up on that maybe I had not been as aware of the last few times through. Um, but the first time I ever saw this was on home video because it came out in 1984. I would have only been 10 years old. I was certainly not going to uh, get into a theater to see it. I want to say it was probably like 1987, 1988-ish before, like I would have been probably about 13, 14 the first time I saw it. Because I, I seem to recall seeing part one and part two at like on the same day for the very first time. So that sort of was my introduction to this film franchise, if you can call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been a big fan of Eddie Murphy. I've always been a big fan of his earlier stuff. I, I, I just... You know, I, I something about being a a young kid watching a movie where the main star is saying bad words through the whole thing uh, appeal. You know, that appealed to the 13 year old me. And, um, you know, even even all these years later, there's there's certainly a lot to like about Eddie Murphy's performance and about his character and about this movie. But I'm sure there are some some little details that we'll we'll nitpick about. But, uh, yeah, overall, I mean, I've always enjoyed this movie. I think it's good. And let's talk about it. So my take on it. This might be one of the best movies to come out of the 1980s. I, I, I think it's one of those movies that gets forgotten a little bit. Like when you look back on the decade, I'm not just talking about comedies here. I think it's one of the very best. So it was directed by Martin Brest. Uh, it was nominated for an Academy Award. I don't know if you know that. Um, yeah, I looked that up. Yeah, yeah, I was really surprised. I thought, oh, it's got to be for the music. And I was a little surprised that it was for the writing. Which, yeah, best original screenplay, which is interesting to me because that's the one area of the movie that I think is lacking. It's, it's kind of a formulaic script. Like, I think when he goes to California, the whole movie could have been this commentary on, you know, American views of race and culture and class. But it kind of just goes for a lot of cheap laughs. I, I think the well, script is one of the weaker parts of the movie. Well, I got to think that given who Eddie Murphy is and given where he was in his career at this point, like by now he had put out 48 hours. He'd been on Saturday Night Live for a number of years. Like he was not the super duper superstar that he became, but he was certainly moving in that direction in a real hurry. And I got to think that a tremendous amount of this is him being taken off the leash and allowed to improv stuff. Oh, it was Uh, because the the movie was originally written for Sylvester Stallone to star in. Yeah, so, I'd so heard there was a wasn't lot of, part of the script. Of yeah, you know? for sure. I think you're right. Eddie Murphy definitely worked, you know, a bunch of things into this. We improvised his scenes. But I just, I, I feel like it could have played a bigger part of the movie. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, it had a budget of $13 million and it grossed $316 million at the domestic U.S. box office. And if you take a look at the box office for a minute, the movie was released on December the 5th, 1984. So you can't just look at the 1984 box office because it's just, you know, like three weeks worth there. But even just considering the three weeks that it was in the box office of 1984, it finished seventh overall. And as we go back and look at the 80s and some of these, you know, the box offices, God, there was good movies back then. So 1984, Ghostbusters was number one. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Gremlins kind of surprises me. was number three. Um, the Karate Kid. I've been watching Cobra Kai too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Love it. Uh, Police Academy, Footloose, and Beverly Hills, Hills Cop. So lots of great movies. Romancing the Stone was in the top ten. That's another movie you got to do sometime. Um, 
So even oh, Bachelor Party was number 18. So it was really good. But if you look at 1985, that's when it really made its money um, because it was in theaters a lot longer. It was the number two movie the next year. Back to the Future was number one. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop was number two. Rambo, First Blood Part Two, Rocky Four, Cocoon, and Witness. And then the Goonies kind of round out those movies. But uh, th- this the thing with this movie was, this was the first of seven Eddie Murphy movies in a row to open up at number one at the box office. Derek, any chance you could think of what the other six of his movies are? Uh, number one? So uh, this one started uh, I, the run. This was the start. Okay. This was the start. So this movie opens at number one at the box office. Okay. I don't think I can get all seven, but I'll give it a try. So Beverly six, Hills Cop. Just six. Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, Do I need them in order? You just want No, no, just one. So Beverly Hills Hills Cop 2 is, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Coming to America. Yes. Uh, Trading Places after this? No, it was before this. Before that? Okay. Um, 83. Harlem Nights? Yes. That's three. Uh, uh, Vampire in Brooklyn? No. No? Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of what he did after this. So he had another 48 hours. Another 48 Hours, yes, was the last right, one. The first 48 Hours was before this one, mm-hmm. so Trading Place was before this one. So that's four, so there's two more. Okay, hold on, let me think. One, uh, one was greatly considered to be a bomb, and it was a bomb, but it opened up at number one. Wow. Uh, you know what? It, I'm not going to get them. That's okay. Yes. It was The Golden Child. The Golden oh, Child yeah. came out after this, opened up at it number one, a- and then tanked. And then the other one a lot of people forget because it was a concert film. It was Raw. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I just, for some reason, assumed that was before this, but... No. And the other thing that's interesting about this movie was it was the highest grossing R-rated film for almost 20 years, Beverly Hills Cop was. Was it dethroned by The Hangover? It was dethroned in 2013 by The Matrix Reloaded. Oh, wow. Okay. R-rated film. Amazing. So, one of the things I want to talk about in this movie is the cast. The, the cast of this film is absolutely perfect top to bottom as far as I'm yeah, concerned. I agree. So I have a question for you. All yep. right. Are you ready? What yep. do the following have in common? Sylvester Stallone, Mickey Rourke, Jeff Bridges, James Caan, Billy Crystal, Robert De Niro, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Gregory Hines, Michael Keaton, Nick Nolte, Al Pacino, Richard Pryor, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Travolta, Robin Williams, and Bruce Willis. What do they all have in common? Any guesses? I'm guessing they were all either considered or offered the part of Axel Foley and either turned it down or or just didn't want it. They were all considered for the role of Axel Foley before Eddie Murphy. It's craziness. Unreal. You could not picture anyone on the planet playing Axel Foley other than Eddie Murphy but all of those well, it would have been a different it would have been a very different movie well and Sylvester like said, Stallone was the big one he was like yeah. the, the movie was almost written for him and yeah. you know didn't he was, go and do Cobra sort of around the same time I think he he had his own ideas of how the movie was supposed yeah. to work and he's like he, he, he couldn't get it done and he's like well I'm gonna go do my own movie and he did Cobra I think that the filmmakers kind of realized he was wrong for this movie and kind of edged him out and so he took some of his ideas and went and made Cobra and I, yep. that's exactly what happened. But Eddie Murphy, oh my God, one of the most absolutely bankable stars of the early to mid 80s, from his debut in 48 Hours to coming to America in 1989, man, this guy was a big draw at the box office. Like the guy had talent, he had charisma, he was, you know, a big movie star, and man, was he fun to watch. I remember right from when he first debuted on SNL. Now, keep in mind, on Saturday Night Live, this was after the original cast. So Belushi and Aykroyd and Radner and Jane Curtin and Lorraine Newman, Bill and Murray and Garrett Morris, after they had all left the show. This new cast, how shall we say, was less than stellar. <laughs> Although it did feature... Those were, they left some pretty big shoes to fill in all fairness. I know, but still. I mean, like, I mean, there was... Um, Julia Louise Dreyfus was a bit of a standout. And Joe Piscopo was pretty popular. Mm-hmm. And Gilbert Gottfried was definitely super original. The cast just wasn't very good. And then there was this rookie writer on the show, Eddie Murphy. And he wasn't originally a cast member, right? He was a writer. And then one 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 show, they had him come out and do an appearance on Weekend Update. And he was so good and so popular with the audience that he was promoted to the main cast. And he basically, I would say he helped save the show from being canceled. 
Oh, absolutely. God, it was yeah. awful after that original cast left. And, you know, as we mentioned, his movie debut, debut was 48 Hours with Nick Nolte. And although Eddie Murphy's known for comedy, 48 Hours isn't really a comedy. It's got funny parts in it, but it's basically a violent cop movie. And Beverly Hills Cop is a bit more of a comedy, but it's kind of a comedy drama, really, with a lot of Yeah, I would, I would call this more of like an action yeah. comedy. Yeah. And, but I tell you, Eddie Murphy cemented himself as a movie star with this role. And it was funny because he was originally set to star in Ghostbusters. But he backed out of that movie in order to do Beverly Hills Cop. So Ivan Reitman had to recast Ernie Hudson in Ghostbusters. But well, I think both movies are are did just fine. Better off. I, and I mean, hey, I, I never had any issues with Ernie Hudson, but I got to think that role would have been a little bit uh, restraining for Eddie Murphy because the, the character of uh, Winston doesn't come into Ghostbusters until like almost an hour into yeah, the movie. Halfway through the movie. Yeah. And the thing was, it's it's almost like what we mentioned last week with Caddyshack, how Bill Murray came into that role and basically took over the movie. Yeah. I think the same thing would have happened with Ghostbusters, with Eddie Murphy, because he would have improvised, his scenes would have been fantastic, and he would have become a bigger part of that movie. But I think the movie might have been hurt for it. Like I, I think, think so too. With Ghostbusters, it was very plot driven, and I yep. think that the characters needed to be in their paces. And not to take anything away from the performers in Ghostbusters, but uh, I mean, I'm totally talking out of my butt here. I don't know for mm-hmm. certain, but I would, uh, in my mind, if Eddie Murphy had been cast in Ghostbusters in the role that you just talked about, I think it would have hurt the movie overall. I don't think it would have had the staying power for the reasons it does. And I think, and then we would have all, obviously we would have been denied his, his breakout here in Beverly Hills Cop. So yep, I, I think everyone worked out okay. Yep. I agree with everything you just said. It's funny. You mentioned when we we're talking about Ghostbusters, when the studio execs first watched the first screening of this movie of Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters had already come out and was very popular. It was like, you know, the number one movie at the box office for that year. And the studio execs watched, I think they just watched the opening scene with the truck and the cigarette crashing. truck yeah and yeah. and the and the one guy turned to the other guy and said this movie will be bigger than ghostbusters it's that good you know and it ended up being that way um okay so other cast members i really want to get into the cast in this lisa eilbacher is one i want to talk about she is so unbelievably beautiful and she retired from acting back in the 90s i think she, she really peaked with an officer and a gentleman in this movie um she did a lot of stuff Mostly TV back in the 70s. Like she did the Hardy Boys and the Winds of War. I remember seeing some photos of her. And it came out after, you know, like in the 90s, 2000s. And she obviously got some plastic surgery work done. And I know there's a lot of pressure on Hollywood actresses to maintain their, you know, looks, quote unquote. But this is one person. I, I really wish we could have seen her age naturally. I think she was one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen in the movies. And she was great in this movie, too. This is the only movie I ever or, or t- thing I ever remember seeing her in, whether it's because I didn't watch any of the other programs that she was a part of or I just don't remember her being in any of those. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought she did a great job and she's certainly very attractive. But to me, it's like, you know. It, it, she wasn't the standout performer in this in my mind, but not to, not to belittle her performance. Yeah. I think just the role itself was a very limiting role. It only like she's only in a few mm-hmm. scenes, but I do think that she had sort of that good rapport with Eddie Murphy where, you know, you got to think anytime Eddie Murphy's in a scene, all eyes are on him. Like he's running the scene and it takes some, some chops to sort of keep up with him and not just be overwhelmed by Eddie Murphy in a scene where maybe he's not supposed to be the main guy in that scene. So from that of you, I think she did a good job. Um, I yeah, also, I mean, I, I, I like, have no, no. I like subtext in scenes, and I think that the scene with them, you know, like the way that the script is written, they're friends, and yes. you know, they've been friends for a long time. But yes, there was a subtext going on with their scene together. There was a lot of chemistry, and it made you wonder if they had some sort of relationship or something. I, 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 I thought she was really good in this. I liked it. I, I you, never thought that. Never you, once. I did. In fact. Upon more recent viewings of it, I got and I've I've heard a few people say this, that I, it's possible that there was probably a potential more of an attraction between Eddie Murphy's character and his his buddy that gets killed at the start of the movie. I mean, they, yes. the guy literally says, right. I love you, buddy. I mean, and I know that's supposed to just be two buds saying like, hey, man, I love you. You're my brother. But, um, you know, some of the things I've read in more recent years say, like, if this movie had been made a little later than 1984 Mm -hmm. 
if if that was the intent, then you know that might have been played up a bit more. But uh, I mean, I don't think that's really in this movie. But I, I'm not necessarily just dismissing it out of hand, but I never got the impression that there was any sort of sexual chemistry or 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 any sort of sexual past between them. I always just got the impression these are two people that have a shared history. They went to probably went to high school together for for years and had a lot of the same friends growing up. And then they're just their friends. It's like your friends. It's like your your best friend's sister. It's like you're just a person who's been in my life this whole time. I'm just I'm not attracted to you. You're just a friend. Anyway, that that was always yeah. my take on it. I'm gl- I'm glad you kind of mentioned that with the with James Russo's character uh, Mikey Tandino because at the beginning that whole scene that they had, you know, I love you, man, and all that that was a lot more drawn out originally, and there was mm-hmm. a lot more going on in that scene, and it was the studio execs that cut it. They insisted it be cut down because it was coming off as a little bit too uh, mm, sexual. How would you say inappropriately gay for 1984? For 1984, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing with James Russo, I don't know if you recognize him or not. He was also in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's the guy at the end of the movie that tries to rob the convenience store. Remember Judge Reinhold throws the pot of Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that was him. I so didn't, I, I mean, yeah. I remember the scene, but yeah. I, I don't remember that's who that was. Okay, uh, Bronson Pinchot. <laughs> that whole Achmel, Achmel Foley is here to see yeah. her. <laughs> it was so good. The, 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 the part where he's like, he, um, so after the whole scene with Eddie Murphy, where th- the assistant comes over and he's got his shirt unbuttoned and he's like, button that up. He goes, that's not sexy. That's animal. Yeah. For some reason, <laughs> that's that my, one of my college roommates, he just thought that was the funniest line of the whole movie. And for years he would just out of nowhere, whenever someone had some inappropriate dress style, he go, that's not sexy. That's not the mall. And it was like, he would try and do the Bronson Pitcho. So for me, every time I watch this movie, that line, I always laugh harder just because I now have this little inside joke tied to it. So, yeah. And you talk about scenes that got cut. That's another one because they, him and the, the other character, they actually had a lot more uh, screen time originally in the, in the script. Like it was the pair of them. And they ended up, you know, cutting a lot of it. And you only see the other guy briefly. But this whole. But I got I got it. Sorry to interrupt here. I got to think that this was an example of there were some some dialogue direction in the script. But you had these these actors who were obviously gifted improv actors who they were like, okay, read it as we've written it. Now go to town. And because I got the impression that a lot of that stuff with him and Eddie Murphy was just some riffing back and forth. And it Mm -hmm. was. Okay, Eddie Murphy is the A plus. You're not gonna you're not gonna beat him. But Bronson Pinchot did a pretty good job of keeping up with him for even those two or three minutes they're in the scene together. And it's funny this this the way that they portray homosexuality in movies back in the eighties was so skewed. It's mm-hmm. like they always felt they had to play it for laughs, you know, with yeah. mainstream audiences. So just but I really liked Bronson Pinchot. Like when he he uses that line, "Don't be stupid." Yeah, because that that ended up ended up becoming "Don't be ridiculous" when he did Malky, yeah. you know, on Perfect Strangers. Um Stephen Burkoff played Victor Maitland perfectly. That cast. guy always plays a villain. Perfect. Remember him in Octopussy, and he was yeah. also in Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Jonathan Banks, I want to mention because he was more recently, obviously, in Breaking Bad. Where he was Mike, the body, that kind of bodyguard kind of yeah. guy, whatever he was. And I he was remembering from that too. old show. I was remembering from that old show, Wise Guy with Ken Wall. Ah, Jonathan yes. Banks played the handler. He was the only guy who knew Ken Wall was an undercover cop. That's how I always remember him because that's the first time I remember seeing him on screen. See, I remember him from this and 48 Hours. He had a small role in 48 Hours. He was a Oh, I don't remember him in 48 yeah. Hours. Um, who else? John Ashton, I thought was great. Taggart. He was great in Some Kind of Wonderful as the dad too. But in this movie, the scene where him and judge Reinhold talk about, the, the, remember the five pounds of undigested red meat in their yeah. mouth. <laughs> like, in the car. Yeah. And the thing is that scene came from an improv scene. That, that, so when they were doing the um, uh, auditions for this movie, they took those two and they put them together and they said, improv, just improv and pretend you're like an old married couple. And right. that's what they talked about five nice pounds of undigested red meat and they ended up using it and putting it into the script i thought, I thought <laughs> he was great and then of course you know his uh his fellow actor in that scene judge reinhold so man where do you start with him I, I know where you're, I, do, I know totally where you're going with this and i'll let you have your piece before i step on it for sure fast times at ridgemont high you know obviously brad hamilton and yeah. then he became the king 
of straight to DVD movies. Oh my God, did he ever? Oh my God. But I tell you, he's a really important part of this movie. And as much as this movie is about Eddie Murphy, if you think about it, it's actually Judge Reinhold that's the Beverly Hills cop. That's the title of the film. I, I, I disagree, but you've gone down this road before. Have your say, and then I'll tell you why I that's, disagree. Well, that's what Eddie Murphy even says. He's like, hey, this is Billy. He's Beverly Hills cop, you know? Um, Which he, I, yes, you're absolutely right in that the dialogue in the movie, when he introduces Billy to Jenny Summers, mm-hmm. is he says, this is Detective Billy Rosewood. He's a Beverly Hills cop. Yes, that line is spoken, but I don't believe that it's intended to denote that it is a literal, this is the Beverly Hills cop in the title of the movie. To me, that moment, it it made Judge Reinhold very an important part of this movie. I really thought it did. Um, I want to mention, too, that behind the scenes, uh, Judge Reinhold and uh, the director, Martin Brest, they really had their moments together. Um, remember the part near the end when they go to Vicar Maitland's mansion and Judge mm-hmm. Reinhold jumps up and he's like, police, you're all under arrest. Yeah. <laughs> Such a yeah. funny line, like a great, <laughs> especially in the context of the scene. He didn't want to do it that way. He didn't like the script and he kept changing the line and he would stand up and say, freeze. And it was just pissing off the director. So they actually fought about that scene. You know, the director got his way. He did it the right way. But I thought Judge Reinhold, uh, I, I don't know. I, I thought he was great in this movie. Uh, he was great in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But uh, what's your take on it? You're, you got something to say about so, it. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with most of what you said about Judge Reinhold. I think in this movie, he's great. I like that in the sequel, obviously I'm not talking about the sequel now, but in the sequel, his character has an evolution because time has passed. And if we ever do the sequel as as a thing on this movie, we can talk about it in more detail. Uh, you know, he's obviously been in some other great movies. He was great in Fast Times at Richmond High. But to your point, he, his career sort of plateaued very quickly. And it seems like based on his IMDb, like he's worked. Yeah. But this this was sort of the pinnacle after fast times and this like there he did some so so movies that clearly his his you know whether it was he was making bad choices whether it was uh he had you know angered the wrong people who knows but going back to your your comment about him being the 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 beverly hills cop of the title i i mean i think i think you're reading too much into it i think it's in my mind, and I think most people would agree, the Beverly Hills cop in the title is Eddie Murphy. The idea is that he and if you even look at the way the font on the on the front of the movie is the Beverly Hills part is written in one way and then the cop is written in like a totally different font. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's supposed to represent that Eddie Murphy is this fish out of water. He is the cop who has come to this, you know, this faraway land to to be the, the you know, the, the differentiator. And I think if if the intent was to you know, try and get you to think that, well, no, we're really talking about the locals. It would probably have an S. It would be Beverly Hills cops more than one. So I've always, I, I mean, you're going to take a lot to convince me. And I don't really think that you're going to do it here that the Beverly Hills cop in the title is Eddie Murphy. I, I, I got it. I can't, I, I'm not going to bend on that one. I, I think that it's just, it's, it's too literal. The title is literal. It's on the nose. Yeah. Don't read into it in this one. Ah, that's fine. And, and the other thing about Judge Reinhold, what's with his first name? Who names their kid Judge? What's up with that? That's just weird. Well, and I think there's a, there was a very short-lived Kevin Smith animated show called Clerks based loosely on his characters from his movie Clerks. And in a couple of those episodes, the characters have to go before a judge and they literally have Judge Reinhold as the judge in the court. <laughs> nice. Because they're making fun of the fact that his first name is Judge, which I always, that always made me laugh. So. Yeah. Uh, another thing I want to mention in this movie other than the cast is the music. It was fantastic and like any great film the music it just makes you know takes it to another level and that's certainly the case here the heat is on by glenn frey to open up the film it, it's so good it's such a good catchy song and it's almost like like the movie itself like like i mentioned at the top you kind of forget just how good this movie is and how important it is to the 80s same thing with this song it's like what a great song what a great 80s song this is and also Neutron dance for the Pointer Sisters. Yeah, the Pointer Sisters. Just put them back into the spotlight as music stars. And the thing is, they originally wrote this song for the movie Streets of Fire. And it ended up in this movie, thank God. Um, I just, oh man, I just, the song is just so, so good. What a, what a great way to do it. And then, of course, the uh, in, instrumental by Harold Faltermeyer, Axel F. Yeah. Like, when does, 
um, an instrumental top the charts, you know, in the, on the, in the music charts in the United States. Well, this one did. And it's just so catchy. The, the music is a really, really important part of this movie. Can you, okay. So let me ask you this yeah. hypothetical here. If you, if they had a way to um, take this movie and remove all the music, what do you think it would like? Do you think how different would this movie be? It would be with, different without, it would be very, very it would different. Be very different. It would. I, like, I don't think it would, I don't think it would be as good. I think you need the music to help. Set, I mean, I think that in general, you need the right music to help set a moment, set the tone and, and the music can, can, um, you know, help convey an emotional feeling like that. That's the magic of music. And I think that the music in this movie is so perfect of its time that it really, it, it helped make a good movie, a great movie. Yeah. And to your point, the Axel F top the charts. And I think that that then paved the way for, I think it was a year later or two years later, the Miami vice theme, same yes. idea, all instrumental top the charts. And it's like, that wouldn't have happened if this one hadn't come first. I, I firmly believe that. I mean, any great movie has action, pace, and plot. But without great characters to motivate it, none of it makes sense. But without great music to also take it to another level, it's just not the same. And I definitely think that's the case here. But I, I think the movie was very well directed, you know. And Martin Brest, like, he didn't do a whole lot. Actually, David Cronenberg was actually asked to direct this movie originally, and he turned it down. Go figure. But Martin Brest didn't do a whole lot else. Like, I mean, he did, obviously, he did this. Midnight Run, which was another great movie. Uh, Sandra Woman, I thought was great. Um, and then he did Meet Joe Black, I never watched it. And Gilles, it was terrible. Which was just a bomb. You never know? And saw then it. He was kind of done. So he hasn't done a whole lot. But um, a couple of scenes I want to talk about in this movie. Sure. So we mentioned already the opening scene with the cigarettes and in the truck and the truck chase. Mm -hmm. It immediately establishes Eddie Murphy as this sort of chameleon, you know, like the way he acts like, like he's a criminal and he, you know, he's doing the deal with the stolen cigarettes and then the truck chase. And it's, and you can tell it's really Detroit in the background, even though they shot some of it, you know, out in California, but you know, now that, yeah, that scene, there's two parts of that scene. Okay. So this movie is very quotable. As I've said before, my wife and I, huge movie junkies, TV junkies, we quote a lot of pop culture to each other in our everyday lives, in our peer group. This movie has some really great, great quotes. And some of the ones that we use continuously come out of that first sequence. There's the one where he's he's the cop comes up to them in the back of the truck and he's yep. like, you know what happened? Officer? It just stopped. It just stopped. <laughs> it just stopped. Anytime in my house when something stops working, that's the line. It's like, what just happened? Like, say there's a power outage, the cable box goes out. It's like, it just stopped, man. It just stopped. Like, we use that line at least once a week, every every week since I've met my wife. It's crazy. And then the other one is where he goes, don't you, you look kind of familiar. He goes, no, man, I'm from Buffalo. <laughs> yeah. Anytime, because we get Buffalo um, television here in right. Toronto. We, we get uh, some of our, our American feed comes from Buffalo. Anytime we're watching TV and they're like, this is Buffalo, Buffalo Network Eyewitness News or whatever. Nine times out of ten, the wife will turn to me and go, I'm from Buffalo, man. It's like, again, it's just you pick up on the littlest things and you make them a part of your of your everyday lexicon. It's just this movie is so good for that. Uh, the other thing I want to mention about that truck chase, too, is if you remember back on the episode you and I did about our pop culture pet peeves, I mentioned. Fruit stand? Yes. All car chases in movies have a crash into a fruit stand at some point. And this one's no different. They just put a spin on it. And if you remember, it crashed into a fruit truck. Yeah. So I don't know. I just thought that was funny. Okay. Another scene I want to mention close to the top of the movie. The chief of the Detroit police chewing him out. <laughs> that scene is so fantastic. The language out of this guy. So this guy was Gilbert Hill is the guy that played the role. He was actually a real life Detroit police officer that played Inspector Todd. And he actually went on to become the president of the Detroit City Council. And he was so good. He was so good in that whole scene. And then also, and while well, you got the scene while he's just chewing about, Paul Reiser is in the scene in the background. This is not my locker. <laughs> like yeah. such, such a memorable role. And, and it just goes to prove that, you know, that old adage that they have they had in theater and it, it applies to movies as well. There's no small parts, just small actors, 
you know he just elevates his character just like i always like that's one line of this movie that i always go like this is not my luck (laughs) i just love that (laughs) um also the scene in the strip bar i think is yeah so i was just about to get to that this is one of this is one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and I'll tell you why. So why? I think I think this is a pivotal scene for a number of reasons. So first of all, I think it's just it's great the way it plays out. But up until this point in the movie, the 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 Beverly the police the Beverly Hills Police Department they don't really know what to make of Axel Foley. He's so far he's been accused of trespassing. He's been accused of disturbing the peace. They've arrested him a couple of times. Like he hasn't demonstrated any reason for them to believe him or to trust him. Or, or to give them the respect that police officers will often give other police officers. Uh, and maybe things were just different in the 80s. Maybe it's a race thing. Maybe it's a, a, a demographics thing where he's clearly a guy who doesn't have any money. And this is Beverly Hills where everyone has money. But in this scene in the strip bar, this is sort of the first time where we as the audience get to see Axel Foley, the police officer, talking about police stuff with other police officers and it's it's sort of his first opportunity like he starts saying i broke into the warehouse and i found these coffee grounds and i see this and i see that and he starts to lay out for for taggart and rosewood like what's been going on but then on top of all that he notices these two guys that are coming in to rob the strip bar and so it's this combination of uh, not only am i a detective and i'm doing the 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 legwork to figure out what's happened on the murder of my friend and this drug smuggling and everything else. But in the moment, his instincts are good enough that he's able to just look around and pick up these little details as any good police officer should be able to do. When you see something that's just a little bit left of center, it draws your attention. And that's not to say that when someone stands out in a crowd, they're up to no good, but it's these kinds of things that a, a trained professional in a, in, an op, in, a, in a career like a police officer, in a career like a detective, who is clearly a distinguished detective, these are the little things that separate you from being an okay cop to being a great cop. And this is the first time that we as the audience are seeing Eddie Murphy in action. And then after the whole scene plays out, what does he do? He tries to give credit to the officers, the local cops, because he realizes this caller isn't really going to make any make or break it for him. He's not there to try and win over these guys, but he knows that if they can get the credit for this caller, that'll look good for them. So yeah, again, now you've got this, too, right? Yeah. You've got this brotherhood here where he's, he's doing the opposite. Those guys have not necessarily given him the respect that, that he would hopefully deserve as if nothing else as a, as a fellow police officer, but he's now trying to, to show them some love by saying like, Oh, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I was there and they followed me in and, and you know, because they saw this was going on. And then of course the cops, Tiger Rosewood, they're like, no, that's not what happened. Yeah. And then they, they have to begrudgingly admit to their superior that Axel Foley has actually done some good police work. And if it wasn't for him, things could have gone a lot worse. So I, I think this is a very, very important scene in the movie. And, I and I really, like, I just, I think it's a great scene in, in general, but I think it's a very important scene to the movie. Yeah, and like, like you mentioned, he, he's not just a great cop. He obviously has great instincts. And then I love when, like you mentioned, they get back to the precinct and the chief asks for the explanation and he gives them the story about how Rose super cops. are super cops. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and, and that's where they, it really endears his character to them. Yeah. You know, but the, the, the best part about that scene is John Ashton, if you remember, has his head down and he's pinching yeah. the bridge of his nose. He's, he's laughing. actually laughing. He's laughing yeah. the whole time of the scene. And if you go back <laughs> and watch it with that in mind, you're like, oh yeah, he is. He's really laughing. Yeah. So, and the other thing I like is when, just a bit before that, when um, Taggart and Rose were arrest fully because he got thrown out of the window. Yeah. And he's like, well, what do you get through for getting thrown out of a moving car? Jaywalking. Jaywalking. Yeah. <laughs> but he, cur- like, so fully curses at them, Right. And Taggart punches him in the gut. I have a question for you. Yeah. Does this scene play any different in 2021 than it did in 1984? And the reason I ask is because there's been a lot of publicity, you know, regarding cops, you know, and people of color. And I know even though Foley's a cop, I wondered if you think if that scene plays any different today than it did back then. Uh, It has to. I mean, I don't I don't think you I I, I think a screenwriter, any screenwriter who is worth half their half their salt is going to recognize that having an old white police officer strike a young black man in that way 
in this context, even though both characters are police officers, is not going to fly. No matter how much you try to set up the context, no matter how how much you maybe have the 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 version of the Eddie Murphy character, quote unquote, deserve it. It's it's not you're not going to do that. You're, you're going to set that scene up differently. Um, just the optics of, of what it represents are just they're so inappropriate. You're, you're not going to you just there's there's no upside to doing it. There are better ways to make that point, knowing what we know now versus knowing what we knew then. I also really like the banana in the tailpipe scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And originally, the, the script called for it to be a potato. But they didn't have a lot of time to shoot the scene. So Murphy suggested uh, bringing in Damon Wayans, who was an unknown actor at the time. Right. And I just, believe this was Wayans' first on-screen performance, first right? First one. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you just do this little part of, you know, giving him a banana yeah. from a fruit tray. And then I love when he meets up with the other cops that they put on the uh, on the scene. He's like, mm-hmm. we ain't going to fall for no banana in the tailpipe. <laughs> He's like, he's like, man, you got to say it, you know, more ethnic. You yeah. Know? You've been hanging around this white guy too long. Yeah, you've yeah. been hanging around them too long. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was when Axel tries to get into Victor Maitland's men's club and he's like, and the guy's not going to let him in. And he's like, okay, mm-hmm. tell him Ramon, <laughs> the fellow yeah. that he met a couple weeks ago, again, playing that whole homosexuality thing for laughs, you know, back in the eighties. And he's like, tell him Ramon has herpes simplex 10. And the guy's like, why don't you tell him? Yeah, maybe you should tell him. Yeah. I think that would be best. Yeah, me too. <laughs> just, that whole scene, it just, it just seems so 80s. It just, it dates the film. But again, I don't know, between some of the sensibilities in it, the, the, the acting, Eddie Murphy at his prime, the music, the script, you know, the different, I think this is an absolute gem of a movie from the 80s. I think it's, just, yeah. in a lot of ways, I think it's forgotten. Just to go back to my original point, because I think when people go back and think about great movies from the 80s, this one doesn't always come into the conversation, and it should. It really, really should, because it is absolutely fantastic. From start to finish, it's got great action. Eddie Murphy just runs the show. Great, you know, dialogue. It's not just a comedy. There's there's action in it. There's quite a lot of violence and gunplay in it. Um, great movie. Just an absolute great movie. I think it's just a forgotten gem of the of the. 80s yeah, I, I got to agree for the most part. I think, well, not for the most part. I do agree. I think this is a great movie. I really enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it a lot when I rewatched it. I even found, so when we did Caddyshack a few weeks ago, I said one of the problems I had with Caddyshack when I just watched it was I didn't laugh out loud as much. Haha, funny. Mm-hmm. Largely because I'd seen Caddyshack so many times. I knew all the jokes. With this one, again, I know all the dialogue. I know all the jokes. But I did still find myself laughing. And I did still find myself smiling and 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 feeling uh, the and like feeling the humor of it and enjoying it more than I did when I rewatched Caddyshack. I think with this one, with Caddyshack, the challenge I had was there were certain scenes and certain characters I just sort of went, I don't really care about these characters. I found with this one, there was really no no characters. There's no parts of this movie. You know, sometimes you watch a movie and you go, oh, it's at the blah, blah, blah part. Okay, well, I, I'm just going to let it run for 10 minutes while I go to the bathroom and get a snack and get a drink and come back. Or or even you're like, I'm just going to skip this part. I find this movie doesn't really have anything like that. There aren't the, any you know slow parts where you're like, well, I'm just going to skip this part. If anything, I feel the only part that I might fast forward through is the shootout at the end just because to me it's like okay i know where this is going they gotta have this big shoot 'em up and it's not really like there's no haha laughs in that part that's sort of the action culmination of the film um but no i agree i think this i think it's a good, good movie i think it's a great example of an 80s movie uh i mean the score alone uh denotes it as an 80s movie it's definitely got um uh, the fact that it's like Eddie Murphy in his prime is is a huge win for this this movie. It's uh, yeah, unlike some of the other older movies, there's not a lot in here that is sort of cringeworthy when you look back. the The fact that they use homosexuality as a punchline is certainly uh, a problem when you look at it through today's lens. But in the moment, in its time, people laughed at that stuff, and and. It was certainly, like you said, Eddie Murphy, when he pretends to be the gay guy in the club, it's played for laughs. It's but it's done in a way like where it's really over the top, which is not to say that it, it you know, that that they would play it that way today. But to me, that was sort of the only thing that that stood up as a little bit of a problem. And, and other than that, and the fact that it's like it's all dudes, it's the, the cast is all men. You couldn't make this movie today and have one female character like 
it, there were so many of these roles, like there's the two partners. You could have easily made one of them a woman. There's no reason that it had to be two guys, except that in the 80s, everything was all men. And that's so, what it was, yeah. Yeah, which is not to excuse it. It's just right. that, you know, it's it's a fact. Um, but this is one of those ones, you know, you always sort of say, well, if they remade it today, what might you change? Or if they were to reboot it today, what would you change? I think, you know, if you're going to keep the main character as a black man, you have to introduce more women in the Beverly Hills side of the story. Um, if you're going to, if you're going to sort of follow this same model, but, uh, but yeah, otherwise I, I like this movie a lot. And, uh, I, I mentioned sort of at the end of the last podcast, when you suggested this, as much as I like Beverly Hills cop. I love Beverly Hills Cop 2. I think the sequel is better than the original. And I think down the road, we'll have to watch it. I, oh, that's a good point. I don't know if it's better, but you got me thinking. Because you mentioned, like you said, at the last, the end of the last show. And I was thinking about it. And I thought, you know what? If I could go back and do our, our uh, uh, sequel show that we did, you know, years ago. I might actually include Beverly Hills Cop Part Two. I really it's very it. it's very it's strong. Very it's, good. it's very it's good. very good. Yeah, I and don't for a know lot if of it's same, better than yeah. the original, but it's really really good. I personally, I I mean, you're gonna ask me to give this one a score out of one to ten. I got to give Beverly Hills Cop probably an eight or maybe even an eight point five. Like it's it's that right. good. But I think Beverly Hills Cop Two will always be a half a point or a point above. So if I gave this one an eight, I would give Cop Two a nine. Like okay. that's how. I definitely think the sequel is is better, but that's not to take away from this first one. I think this first one is great. I, I'm going to give it an eight. An eight? I think I would go with a nine. This movie has a little bit of everything, and it's better than what I remember it being. So I will give it a nine out of ten. On that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, my friend. It was uh, my movie, so it's over to you for trivia this week. What do you got? All right, so uh, this movie is called Beverly Hills Cop, and yes, it, is. it may surprise you to learn there have been a lot of movies with Beverly Hills in the title, like way more than you probably think. So I'm going to give you the description of, I think I've got 10 or 11 movies here. All wow. of them have Beverly Hills in the title, and all I want you to do is give me the title of the movie knowing that part of it is Beverly Hills. And I'll tell you now, none of the movies are just called Beverly Hills. Okay. Okay. Some of these movies are, were not great movies and probably weren't widely distributed. So I, there's going to be a few you're just not going to get. Mm -hmm. But I tried to give you the names of at least one or two cast members in just about every one of these uh, because I was surprised at even some of the ones that seemed like they were really B-list movies or mm -hmm. or movies that maybe uh, probably not direct to video because some of them came out in the 80s. But there were some names where you're like, really, that person was in that movie. How do I how have I never heard of this? It's like, well, because the movie sucks. That's why. But OK, so there's some easy ones or some hard ones. I'm going to throw them at you. I honestly don't expect you to get them all. Some of them you're just there's no way you're going to get them. But in order to keep the theme going. They all have the, the the name Beverly Hills is in the title. I can think of and a few off the top of my head. Apparently, interesting. Yeah. four of these movies came out in 1989. So I'm going to start, since that's sort of in your wheelhouse. I, I think I maybe need to have a beer for this. Yeah. I'm not doing the trivia this week, so I get to relax. So there okay, you go. Hit me with it. So the first four movies I'm going to give you all came out in 1989, and they all have Beverly Hills in the title. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. First one from 1989, a right. soon to be divorced Beverly Hills socialite played by Shelley Long is determined to prove to her husband played by Craig T. Nelson and herself that she can finish what she starts when she becomes a mentor to a local girls social club. Oh, that was a troop Beverly Hills. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. 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 Okay. That was, I wanted to give you one that I thought you could get off the bat because these next few are years to do this movie career. That's what she came up with. God. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. All right. This one's a little tougher. A doctor played by Frank Gorshin mm -hmm. and a mortician teamed up to do reanimation experiments on corpses using money borrowed from gangster Vic Tabak. From 1989, it's got Beverly Hills in the title. I don't know. It's called Beverly Hills Body Snatchers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know how big a fan you are of Vic Tabak, so I thought, oh, well, maybe Chris has seen I this. I like Vic Tabak. I didn't yeah. know he did any movies other than... Neither did I. I was shocked to see anymore. him in the, in the IMDb. <laughs> All right. Who knew? He Here's another one that you're probably not going to get. It's also from 1989, but it had a slightly bigger cast. 
A rich young boy, played by Peter Billingsley, arranges to be kidnapped so that he'll get more attention from his parents, including Martin Sheen. Oh, that almost sounds familiar, but I don't think I know the title. What is it? It's called Beverly Hills Brats. Okay. Okay, here's the the, the fourth and final one from 1989 before okay. we move on to... 89 had so many... All these Beverly Hills ones. Crazy. I think Beverly Hills 90210 had just come out. And so they're like, we're cashing in on this Beverly Hills thing. So, okay. From 1989, the president's daughter is held for ransom in Beverly Hills by a group of Middle Eastern terrorists. Retired special forces agent and karate master Hack Stone, played by Frank Stallone, is sent on a risky operation to get her back. Frank Stallone? I don't know. It's called Terror in Beverly Hills. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> oh, yep. baby. <laughs> okay, here, I, I, got a, I got a nice easy one for you here. All right. Okay, this one's from 1986, right, right in your wheelhouse. Okay. A rich but troubled family, played by Richard Dreyfus and Bette Midler, yep. find their lives altered by the arrival of a vagrant, played by Nick Nolte, who tries to drown himself in their swimming pool. I like this movie, actually. It was down and out in Beverly Hills. Yes. I, I've never seen it, but I've heard good things. It's quite good. It's quite good. Yeah. Okay. I know you have definitely not seen this, but hey, you, you sometimes you know some weird stuff. Mm -hmm. This one's from 2008, so totally not in your normal wheelhouse. It isn't, no, but go ahead. While on vacation in Mexico, Chloe the dog finds herself lost and in need of assistance to get back home to Beverly Hills. Oh, Frank, I think I know this only because I've got little kids. Is it Beverly Hills Chihuahua? Yes! Oh, my God. I thought you might have got that one. Nice. Oh, man. Nice. Okay. Having kids Again, paid off, finally. This is another one I think you might get. It's from okay. 1993. Right. It's an adaptation of a classic television show of the same name mm -hmm. in which a redneck played by Jim Varney strikes oil and moves his family to Beverly Hills. Now, I haven't seen this movie, but I know the original show. It's the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Yes. Yeah. yes. All right. Now we got a few that are a little tougher for you here. I'm sure. This one's are. from 1991. A group of embi embittered ex-cops, including Ken Wall and Matt Frewer, use a chemical spill to raid the banks and homes of Beverly Hills. Um, don't know. It's called The Taking of Beverly Hills. And that's our second Ken Wall reference of the night. Like, holy cow. All right. Uh, I think I think you're going to get I got three more. I think you're going to get them all. OK. OK. This one's I from 1997. A big hearted but bumbling orphan played by Chris Farley travels from Japan to Beverly Hills on a mission to help a woman investigate her shady boyfriend. I remember at the time watching this movie thinking that he was really funny and I thought he'd be good and this movie was horrendously bad. It's Beverly Hills Ninja, right? That's correct. Yeah. And, and you're right. It was pretty awful. It had a few memorable scenes, but not worth the 90 minutes to get there. No. Yep. All right. From 1998. The, sorry, the movie came out in 1998. Okay. My clue begins. In 1976, a lower middle class teenager played by Natasha Leone struggles to cope, uh, struggles to cope living with an erotic family of nomads played by Alan Arkin and Marissa Tomei on the outskirts of Beverly Hills. I have no idea. It was called The Slums of Beverly Hills. Slums of, oh, okay. Apparently it was a pretty big hit. Again, I, I haven't seen it, but I heard it was quite good. Okay, she last was in one. Orange is the New Black. I remember yes, she, she was. was really she, was good. A, she was in American Pie, too. Oh, yeah. We watched that one for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. All right, last one. Nice, mm. easy one. Okay. A Detroit police officer returns to Beverly Hills to help local police investigate the near fatal shooting of their chief and the series of alphabet crimes associated with it. That was definitely Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yes, there we go. Nicely done. Nicely done. All right. All right. Okay. Well, I got a couple. That was that was tough, man. Well, who I, knew yeah. there were so many movies with Beverly Hills in the title? I never would have thought there was that many. I would. No. I, right I at the top, you mentioned. I thought, well, there's Beverly Hills Cop. There's 
down and out in Beverly Hills, and I can't really think of any others. Beverly Hills Ninja. Until you mentioned Chris Farley, and I was like, oh yeah, Beverly Hills Ninja was that one. Other than that, I was kind of just grasping at straws, so. It was all, that was good, good stuff. Okay, so uh, I picked the movie this week. Um, it's over to you for next week, Derek. Now we're trying to find, uh, you know, some sort of thread or connection yes. between the yes. films. So it's your turn to, to pick a movie. How do you want it to connect into Beverly Hills right. Cop? So I got a few, I got a few threads we can pull on okay. that all sort of tie this together. So right. I'm going to recommend a movie to you that's about cops and a drug deal. Uh, so that sort of ties into what we're doing. I'm going to re- reference... The movie that we're going to watch has a small but memorable part by Bronson Pinchot, who we talked about earlier. And the movie I'm going to ask you to watch is directed by the guy who directed Beverly Hills Cop 2, which was Tony Scott. So the movie I want you to watch is True Romance from 1993. Interesting. You know, I've heard about True Romance. I've heard a lot. I've never watched it. Oh, good. I was I, no, I wasn't never, sure if you had seen it or not. I, I'm glad it. you're coming to it fresh. I, I, I love this movie. And I love Tony Scott as a director. There, He's one of my all-time favorites. Isn't there um, a Tarantino connection with that movie? Yeah, he, he wrote the script. He wrote, okay, he wrote it. Okay, so, yeah, no, I've heard uh, I've heard lots about it. I've never seen it. So uh, this is a great opportunity for me to watch this and, uh, and uh, to come back and review it. So, hey, that'll be awesome. Great. Right. I was trying to find something a little newer. But I was having a hard time connecting the dots. And I th- I have a list of like seven or eight movies that I want to try and get you to watch. And this is on that list. So I thought, you know what? Th- this is probably my my easiest connection, uh, uh, given where we were. And uh, yeah, 93 is a little early for me. I know that's just sort of on the edge of your comfort zone, but I'm glad you haven't seen it. So I- I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. It is in typical Tarantino style very violent like exceptionally violent so i know your wife will sometimes sit down and watch these movies with you i seem to recall that she's not a big fan of the of the overly violent picks so this may not be one for her but hey you never know when we talked about our favorite directors wasn't tony scott one of your favorites yeah he's like my number one or my number two yeah that's what i thought so i love tony scott's film he's great well this should be pretty interesting so i'm looking forward and the thing was you know looking back to beverly hills cop you know, it's not really just a comedy. Like, there's a lot of violence going on in the oh, movie, yeah. too. Like, so I think people forget it. I certainly forgot it until I went back and watched it this week. So, well, that'd be a good tie-in. I like it. All right. So, tell you what, you come back next week, and we are going to review uh, the Tony Scott film, True Romance. But until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.